From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Before we launch today's podcast, a word from our sponsor, Gosling's Rum. Gosling's Black Seal Rum is the spirit of Bermuda. I mean, and Bermuda, like, I really want to go to Bermuda right now. Like, I can't even tell you how much I'd rather be in Bermuda than my freaking Brooklyn apartment, but whatever. <laughs> Handcrafted by eight generations of family rum makers, Black Seal Rum is the key ingredient in Bermuda's national drink, the Dark and Stormy, which is delicious. You guys think that black, the Dark and Stormy is delicious, right? Oh, yeah. That's okay, awesome. I was going to say, I would settle for just drinking a Dark and Stormy right now. I don't need to go all the way to Bermuda. Yeah, but I mean, come on. But anyways, it's one of the few trademark cocktails in existence, and the Dark and Stormy trademark is turning 40 years old this June. So you can now mix up your own. Stock up on Gosling's Black Seal Rum and Gosling's Stormy Ginger Beer in time for Dark and Stormy Day, which is on June 9th, which I never knew about, but now I'm definitely going to make a Dark and Stormy then. So for a limited time, you'll receive $15 off your purchase on ReserveBar.com using the code VINEPAIR. So go to ReserveBar.com, buy Gosling's Black Seal Rum and Gosling's Stormy Ginger Beer, use the code VINEPAIR, get $15 off, and then make a Dark and Stormy for Dark and Stormy Day on June 9th. I mean, I don't see why you wouldn't do that. That's a pretty good offer. Yeah, right? Tag Vine Pair in your Instagram pictures of your uh, Dark and Stormy. Exactly. And we'll all enjoy one together. So anyways, thanks, Goslings, for sponsoring today's podcast. Before we get into the the topic um, of the day, how how you guys holding up? My blender came. Oh, oh. tell us about the blender. What have yeah. you been doing with it? I mean, it, I unpacked it last night. So I have not – you know, it's perfect because now today's Friday. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll try to make a – like dark and stormy slushy um I'm, I'm getting pretty pumped though for the weekend so i think tomorrow or saturday or sunday because i think tomorrow's supposed to be a little gross out uh i'm gonna try to make some some frozen drinks and take them into the park yeah your yeah. cocktail horoscope is definitely frozen margaritas within the next 24 hours <laughs> and that's it right yeah what sign is that i'm not sure <laughs> i don't know i, I mean Look, at least I mean, I have to say, Zach, I saw you I saw you trying to come at me in the comments of Instagram, <laughs> but I will let you know that the I, I'm much happier to have my sign, the cancer, according to, to Vine Pear and our graphic designer Daniel Grinberg, be uh, a Paloma than whatever the garbage cocktail was that you had. Garbage <laughs> cocktail? Man, it's a gin and tonic, the greatest cocktail <laughs> ever. You are you are team gin and tonic, so you are you are either you are reversing yourself here, or you are—I uh, don't know what's going on. I just, you know, if, if if it's associated with me, like the Paloma, I feel like it's probably the best, right? If I would have gotten the Bloody Mary, I would have said it's the best cocktail. It's my sign, man. I don't think you would have. I'm pretty sure the Bloody Mary might have been a bridge too far for you. Yeah, I don't really do the Bloody Mary. That's true. What what is a Bloody Mary called when you put gin in it? Just a Bloody Mary with gin? Yeah. No, I it has a name. It's, I don't. Uh... It, it's not my favorite. You can make good ones, but I like other spirits. But but in a if I'm going to mix it up from from vodka, but uh, yeah, gin you kind of you kind of lose most of what makes gin interesting and in something like a Bloody Mary. I don't think it comes through very clearly. So you think like only a Bloody Mary with vodka? Yeah. No, I mean I like them with. I think like you can use like tequila is interesting. Like a Bloody Maria can be pretty good. Yeah. Um, Akavit I've had before and liked, but but something about the just the flavor of gin in my experience, like you just don't taste it. Like we're we're burying all the sort of delicate botanicals under tomatoes juice and Worcestershire and horseradish and all that. So it's like the, the drink has so much going on that I guess I don't see the need for gin. So basically you're just doing it because either you don't have vodka, which fine, I guess, or I don't know. You're just trying to seem different and either just <laughs> stand out with a bloody Mary. Way to be judgy yeah. wudgy was a bear. I mean, come on. <laughs> Zach. Are you jealous that I'm on your turf? A little bit, yeah. That's, that's my role on the podcast. <laughs> I think this whole podcast is going to be a lot of judginess, so I'm just getting, I'm just getting warmed up. 
I know. Well, so so I guess let's get right into the, <laughs> to the topic because we all seem like we're we're raring to go. Um, and so yeah, so t- today I think what we want to talk about is what will what will determine what we'll call what's a good name for it? Like wines of the moment, maybe. So wines that may or may not be amazing, but have seemed to gain a lot of traction over the last few years. Some may be amazing, according to some of us, some may not, but in the in, in the recent trend of wine, they've seemed to be everywhere. Um, and what we mean by that is everywhere inside bubbles, right? So we may be talking about some wines that people who are listening to this podcast had never heard of before, right? So I think, you know, we'll, we'll try to explain what they are. Um, but then, you know, other people might be like, yeah, that's my favorite. And I'm going to totally come at you in the comments, um, which you're free to do. Uh, I'll give you Zach's email address if you email me at podcast at vinepair.com and I'll let you talk to him personally about your thoughts about whatever he has to say today. Just come find me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. You love to fight on Twitter. I do. (laughs) But you know, before we, you know, so I guess, is there, is there a better way to describe this guys that I, did I handle that description? Well, well, I think one of the parts of uh, the conversation that we've been having is that, and I'll, I'll give an example. So for example, Bordeaux. Bordeaux has so many beautiful wines and such great values. So for example, I recently had this uh, Saint-Emion Grand Cru 2010. Um, It was a beautiful wine, like, you know, some forest floor, some leathery notes, like just gorgeous, $25, right? Where else are you going to find a 2010 beautiful wine for $25? five dollars um you know with that type of age it's just so rare but the reason i'm able to get that right now and other um classic wines either with age or not is because people think it's really uncool in certain wine bubbles so like you know anywhere exactly no one thinks people think bordeaux is so uncool but then for people like me who appreciate classic wines and uh are looking for values i mean even up here in connecticut i can go into a wine store and find a couple overlooked bottles of older bordeaux and they end up being amazing values so i think what we were discussing is that some of these uh classic wine regions are just being totally overlooked and poo-pooed as like over but but that is so not the case. Like the, these wines are amazing. And on the other hand, we've had so many kind of, you know, hipster, like clever uh, kind of presentations and, um, and, you know, like Piquette we've been discussing. I think like those types of wines, you know, you're also getting them for like $15, $25 and they don't always give you the same value. So I think that's that's part of the conversation to dive into. I mean, I think that there's this this issue where, like, what what we're talking about is why what it, what makes a wine cool all of a sudden, and why is there this big rejection of great wines? I mean, I think we all know the answer, right? It's that every generation doesn't like what their parents liked, right? So this idea that Bordeaux was sort of created by or made popular by our parents' generation, the, the the world of Robert Parker is why this generation doesn't like it, which I think is kind of ridiculous because literally like Jefferson was riding around on his horse, uh, you know, going to different Bordeaux vineyards back when the country was founded. So it's not like Bordeaux just like all of a sudden was made cool, you know, 30 years ago, um, which I think is really interesting. And that there is this desire to like, just like the new and different. I, I think a lot of that has to do with like wine uh, or certain people in wine really desperately wanting it to be like craft beer. And like that, this is my hot take. There have been a lot of people, including me, who said that like there's a lot wine could learn from craft beer, 
There's a lot of accessibility lessons that wine could learn from craft beer. There's a lot of ways that the, that at least up until about a, until a few years ago, I feel people who were purveyors of craft beer and sellers of craft beer, craft beer were welcoming and non pretentious. I think that's changing. I think you know, I would say, and people can come at me like the advent of the cicerone is not great for craft beer. Um, like it, it just, it's again, creating a gatekeeper that, uh, and, and a level of now certification people feel like they need to have in order to be able to talk about beer, which is not what beer has been before this, but you know, there were things about it that were great. Like they are, they, they were welcoming, they were willing to teach, they were willing to show why these styles were considered so delicious, et cetera. And I think that like, there's like, there's been a group of people in wine who've taken that lesson instead of saying, okay, cool. Like, so how do we apply this to you know, amazing wines from Bordeaux and, you know, Napa and the Finger Lakes and whatever. And just said, you know what? Cool, man. Like, let's make our version of craft beer. Piquette. Let's make Piquette. Let's make something that's like totally undrinkable if you actually care about any complexity whatsoever. But like it, we're, we're going to put it in a can and make it look like it's a craft beer, and it, but it's made from grapes. And that's so fucking rebel. And I think that that's like what we're seeing in, in the industry right now from a group of people. And they're making a, they're actually making a lot of people who are getting interested in wine think that these amazing wines from amazing regions actually aren't as great as these sort of like meh products from places that aren't so great. Well, I think some of this boils down to a an unfortunately prevalent instinct and in, certainly in wine circles and maybe in in not just wine circles but in in beverage circles in general which is the this idea that what what a sommelier or wine shop owner or even a, a writer or someone like that wants to do is they want to expose you to something you've never heard of, right? They want that th th for a lot of people in those, in those various fields, what they see as maybe like their crowning glory is like, I got, I, tr I had someone try this bottle of wine from a place or a grape or a style that they'd never heard of. And they, then they fucking loved it. And great. You know, those stories are cool, but in the end, like when I was working as a sommelier, that to me the most important thing was like, did the person like the wine? And and if and if the wine they liked was was a wine that was from an, a totally classic region and varieties that they were super familiar with, but you know what, it was what they wanted. Like that's, I mean, we've done podcasts before about sort of what we feel like the role of the sommelier is, but but I think this is true to some extent for for most parts of the industry. You know, our job is not inherently uh, exclusively about you know, charting the absolute, um, you know, most extreme ends of wine or spirits or, or beer, there's a place for that, right? It's important to be aware of what is going on, you know, because sometimes we make really cool discoveries that way. But I think this way a lot about, about wine. And I think about it sometimes in terms of cocktails too, where like, yeah, could you put random ingredients together and keep mixing things up and eventually stumble upon a drink that's good? Probably. But a lot of what you make is going to suck. And there's nothing wrong with classic cocktail recipes. They're classics for a reason. And the same is true with wine. You know, Bordeaux, as Erica mentioned, lots of other places that that are that have traditionally produced great wine are still producing great wine. And yes, some of that wine has become, you know, comically expensive. And that's what turned a lot of people off of those regions. But especially in places like Bordeaux, where there's just a lot of production in general, underneath that extremely expensive wine is a lot of very good wine that's very affordable. And and so yes, it's cool that we are in a we live in a world where people are out there exploring not just Piquet, but they're exploring, you know, indigenous varieties in Hungary or Greece or Pais down in South America, my own feelings about it notwithstanding. But well, now we have to talk about those feelings. Well, but yeah. But, but, but not but but coming back and saying this is the best wine on the planet 
is a, just to me is a little bit of a laughable proposition. Like, is it possible that the best wine on the planet is something that no one has ever heard of? I guess, but like the honest truth is we probably already know what the best wines on the planet are. And they're the things that have largely been considered the best wines on the planet, not just by our parents' generations, but by successive generations of wine drinkers. And yes, some of those things come and go styles evolve and change. And and even within those places, they evolve and change. But like, I think it's kind of like, it's just this, it's this attempt to be, to be trendy and that's fine. But, but again, you know, like, I just feel like sometimes we are, some people are trying too hard to, to sort of have this moment of like, I have discovered the greatest thing on earth. And I mean, sorry, but get over yourselves. You probably have not. Yeah. Well, and we should probably define what PK is yeah, just so people know. Actually for being the person that's like, wait, we just, we just did what we were complaining about. We just sort of filled a bubble and then let's talk about a wine yeah. that no one actually knows about. So please. <laughs> well, how I think about Piquet is that it's the beer of wine, right? Ooh, so you take the grape skins and the seeds from after you've squeezed out all of the juice and what's left over is those skins. And you add uh, probably a small amount of wine back and then water and you ferment it. Um, and then after that initial fermentation, when you're getting ready to bottle, you probably add a little bit more sugar or honey to kickstart a secondary fermentation. So the end product that you have, which is usually under bottle cap, is low alcohol. It's fizzy. It's kind of like a soda. It actually has an interesting um, history, which is that it dates back to Greek and Roman times. uh, And it was called Laura back then. And it always, throughout the generations, whether you're in France or Italy or really in any wine producing region has been um, a a drink that you have like at lunch for the vineyard workers, for people who are, you know, working uh, in the winery and want something to drink that's not, you know, glasses of wine that have higher alcohol, but it's generally about four to 9% alcohol. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really just like a beer. And um, it was to ensure you were drinking basically clean water, correct? Right. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so it's, it's really the, it's the beer of wine. That's how we can think of it. I mean, also like, so this is, again, this is all third party information. So I'm not really sure how accurate some of this is, but like, it's been explained to me as well that like, it was a beverage that was created for like slaves, right? So it was, you know, Roman slaves were given this because they weren't believed to be worthy of actual wine, which, okay, it's cool that like it's being reclaimed, I guess, but it's, I mean, it also, it's kind of has a troubled history because of that. Like I, it's a, it's a whole weird thing. And now like it's all being, you know, reborn as this very cool beverage. But I, I mean, every time I've had it, I've just kind of been like, okay, it's like, the beer of wine, I think, is a great description of like it's just like a white claw. It's like a white claw made <laughs> with with like grape skins and seeds. And like I don't think it's that interesting, but people like in certain circles of like losing their crap over it. Like just being yeah. like, This is the best thing I've ever had in my life. This is so cool. Like get on that Piquette train. And I'm like, and I kind of just don't understand why, uh, except for maybe herd mentality, or because like we're in the in the wine where people are looking for their own version of white claw. I don't really I don't understand. Yeah, I haven't had any examples that I'm really excited about. I mean, most of the ones that I've had have been um, from Cab Franc or um, another red variety. But I do think there could be potential from uh, like a Riesling or a Gewürztraminer. I've heard that uh, that Piquettes made from those varieties are a little bit better, but I haven't tried them myself. Zach, what about you? Have you had it? I have tried like one or two. And like Erica said, I think they were both made from Cab Franc. But, but I think it's one of those things too where it's like, 
I guess there's there's this one part of it where you're like, okay, maybe you can create a somewhat consumable product from from you know sort of the leftover must just in the way that like things like grappa are made. I mean, not in the same methodology, but the sort of the same idea, right? Like why just comp- compost this when we can get some additional alcohol out of it? But but I think that some of this just boils down to what is to me kind of just a philosophical difference between people in this industry, which is like I don't have any problem drinking wine that I love over and over again. Like I don't, I don't get, I mean, I get bored of maybe a specific wine, I guess, if I drink it too much, but for the most part, I'm not like, well, I've already had, you know, Barolo. So I'm, I've, I've done Barolo. I'm good. I'm going to move on to something else. I don't say I'm done. I've done Mosul Riesling. I'm, I'm good with it. Like those are wines and lots of others that I want to keep coming back to over and over again. And some of this, I think just kind of comes out of this like other desire that, that frankly, I mean, I'm going to say, here's my hot take. I think a lot of the people who are pushing this are people who came to wine either from another industry entirely or came to it for reasons that are different than me. Like I got into wine because I was in the restaurant industry. And as I was more interested in hospitality and and in working in the industry, wine became more and more interesting to me intellectually and also became important to me professionally. And so to me, I don't have a sort of, I don't have a need to sort of, uh, I don't think, I hope. (laughs) <laughs> to sort of prove that I can be the coolest psalm or the coolest whatever out there. And I think there are other people, and we've seen this throughout wine and, and other parts of the beverage industry too, who come to it from another industry and say, hey, I have to like make my mark. And so my mark is I'm going to pick this thing that you've never heard of, whether it's Picat or otherwise. And and that's my that's where I'm going. And and it doesn't, it, you know, you can't make your mark advocating for, I don't think, maybe you can now, but you can't make your mark advocating for Bordeaux anymore because everyone knows Bordeaux. But you can if you pick something super obscure. And again, this isn't to say that everyone who advocates for obscure stuff is, you know, sort of doing it for this duplicitous reason or, or self-aggrandizing reason. But an alarming number of them seem to be, at least from my experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, I mean, that's an interesting point. I I do. It is it's interesting to see that some of these things do blow up. And then it's like, if you don't like it, all of a sudden you don't get it, which is I think this is why, like, we wanted to record this episode, right? Because there's I've we've heard I've heard from a lot of people who've said, like, I just don't understand this and when i say i don't get it or i'm not i i'm not into it there's this blowback like yeah man you just you don't understand this stuff is amazing and like you're just old school and like lame and i think that's also not cool like i like if you like piquette cool if you like other kinds of wines cool like obviously there's a wine you just mentioned zach that like eric and i actually really like i I think pais is pretty delicious but i understand why others don't and i'm not gonna say Oh, like you're wrong and I'm right. And like, if you don't understand Pais or you don't appreciate it for why I appreciate it, you're wrong. And like, you're, you're just like that old school wine person. Like, I totally understand why you love Barolo. Mosul Riesling is not my thing either, really. But I mean, I understand as well. I can appreciate it. Right. But I, I, I don't, that's the mentality that I, I haven't really understood in the past few years in wine of like, there's a, there's like a community that feels very attacked. Right when anyone questions the wines that they that they're pushing, of like, well, why are we into this? Or like, what is the point of pushing this as opposed to something else? Whereas, I don't know. I guess I don't really generally feel like I feel attacked at all. Yeah, I mean, I think my and uh, coming at it from a media perspective, I would say that of all of our perspectives, uh, maybe the media is the big culprit here in yeah, looking for the new and next, right? Because we are always looking for those stories. What, you know, what is fresh? What's a, a great new idea? And I think that that search for the new and next can uh, sometimes be 
in, you know, a folly that it's not, it's not always the way to go. And I, I made a commitment to myself within the past year that I would explore regions that were not super cool and that, that I wanted to take a different tack. So, you know, I started getting into um, New Zealand and looking at New Zealand Pinot Noirs, found some amazing New Zealand Pinot Noirs that I think are frankly completely overlooked. Uh, right now, I've been drinking through a bunch of Portuguese white wines, and I've found that I love these are crunchy, bright, salty, minerally wines from all different parts of Portugal that a lot of people are just not into or don't know about or don't care about. And I, I think it's it is very individual. For me, it feels like I you know I want to go on like a wine adventure. At this moment, I am like traveling through wine. I have uh, three different bottles of Portuguese whites that I've lined up that. I'm tasting through that, like, this is my trip to Portugal, because I can't go there. But I think that's, you know, that's, that's the, the one thing that we can do that's a positive is just, you know, pick some regions that are maybe unexplored regions, even Bordeaux as an unexplored region that a certain segment of consumers have never even considered, because they've said, I'm too cool for Bordeaux. Well, you know what? Give it a shot. Why don't you why don't you try some of those wines and see if you actually like them? And so that's the way I like to go about it. I like to just go kind of region by region and try some things and look for some sort of well-known producers or producers that are doing um, interesting things and, uh, you know, kind of go on my little adventure, even if it's not a cool region. And I think you made a, a good point, Erica, and I wanted to sort of add a, a note to that, which is, I think it's important to distinguish sometimes, and especially for those of us in the media, and I guess I'm a little bit of everything these days, that good story and good wine are not always the same thing, um, that there can be fascinating stories in the world of wine and hopefully they, or, or anything, you know, beer, spirits, et cetera. And hopefully they come along with, with good or great wine, but, but that the, those two things are not always the same. And sometimes really great wine has a kind of shitty story. Like it's just not that interesting. You know, it's like someone plant built a winery and makes wine and it's like, well, okay, cool. Like there may not be a lot to say there. And so from a, from a media standpoint and, and from everyone kind of listening to this, you know, some of how you behave is a little bit dependent on what your role in this industry is, if you're, or, or if you're a consumer and what you like to drink. So, you know, the, the stories are a meaningful part of this. I think that's that's important to note. And I certainly am capable of being swayed by the stories in a host of different ways. But at the same time, you know, the the the, the enjoyment of the beverage is really what this is, I think, fundamentally about. And so uh, to Adam's point, telling someone, hey, you shouldn't like this because it's not cool is really just, I mean, it's such a self-defeating, such a such a sad indictment of the uh of the industry but I, I think about it this way right like i don't know maybe this is a movie reference that is now too dated for some of our listeners but but the the movie high fidelity you know people watch that movie and i think most people you know sort of see the the jack black character and go wow that guy sucks like he's such an, a pretentious asshole and then some people go oh i want to be that guy yeah and so if you want to be that if you want to be that kind of character in wine or spirits or beer you know, like maybe take a moment and, and don't be the arbiter of other people's tastes. You know, you can talk about what you like, you can try and explain what you like, but you know, in the same way that I think, you know, say the great classics of, of rock and roll are still great music and I still play them for my son. Uh, and he seems to really like them. Uh, they're the same thing is true with wine. Uh, we haven't gotten to that point with him yet, but maybe one day we will drink some Bordeaux together. <laughs> or maybe he'll be like, dad, I only drink Picat. 
It'll be like <laughs> Space Paquette or something by that point. Yeah. I just think I think that you know it's it's interesting because like it is there's a lot of other things we could have talked about in terms of the like the this vibe that sort of is coming out. But I feel like for whatever reason, even though we said we weren't going to do a full Paquette podcast, it basically became that it is like one of the best sort of examples of what we're talking about of just this thing that sort of has seemed to come out of nowhere and people who are sort of questioning it or being like, I didn't really enjoy this are kind of being told that then they don't get it. And so like, I don't mean for this to be an anti Piquette podcast. I don't want us to come across that we're being, you know, the the same people were saying we, we, you shouldn't be, but it is very interesting that like this thing, you know, appeared it was it was deemed to be you know cool by whoever it was deemed to be cool by. It's now I mean there's a lot of people I know making it like winemakers that I don't think should be making it right who are now doing it because they think it's it gets in on the trendy game as Erica's saying because more people will buy it and cover it and write about it in the you know the the publications of the world that I guess they think are worthwhile of of having it covered by. But I don't I I actually wonder like how many people truly love it. Like how many people would take it over, you know, a really nice, you know, just bottle of sparkling or over just a good spritz. In all honesty, I'd rather have a wine spritzer in a lot of ways. Like let's, let's mix this with some club soda over ice. So I don't, it's just, it's almost like it's being created because of the buzz and because people now have decided it's cool. And I wonder how many people really think it's good. And I think, you know, the other part of this is, you know, I, the the way we've dabbled in this conversation before is, I think, largely talking about natural wine. And there's definitely some overlap in these two communities. And and I think, again, to, to come back to where I think, I, I think we landed on that sort of topic in general, like, enjoy it if you like it. That's totally cool. But but the down the thing that we think on both sides are, is bad to do is to sort of try and make yourself the arbiter of what people should and should not drink. I think if you want to make statements about what people should and should not drink, those statements should be based on things that are not personal taste. Do you want to say, hey, we think you should support or I think you should support a sustainable agriculture? Great. That's a defensible statement that you can sort of make a broader point about. Yeah. Hey, I think you should make a point to to try and find wines from producers that represent traditionally underrepresented communities within the wine world. Great. That's a defensible position that you can sort of make a statement about. And there's lots of great examples of great wines that that meet those those various categories. Where it becomes dicey to me is you say to someone, hey, you shouldn't like this thing you like, or you should like this thing that you don't like. And if you don't like it, you're a bad wine drinker or you're not cool. And that just to me is is where this whole thing stops being fun. It just, it loses its accessibility. It becomes, you know, just, I guess ironically sort of moves further away from that sort of craft beer inclusive model that you talked about at the beginning, Adam. And and when it and when we tell when we start telling people you're a bad wine drinker for liking this or a bad wine drinker for not liking this, whatever that is, you know, be it Paquette or Bordeaux, frankly, then you start to just kind of make people, you know, they 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 move away from this wonderful beverage, and that's that's a bummer. Yeah, I think it's the dogma, and just uh, like I, I saw recently, one reviewer said, you know, I will only. Uh, I will only consider bottles that have been, um, you know, farmed in uh, one specific type of way that have been made using the specific method that, you know, have been bottled with sulfur under 10 parts per million. And I was like, really? That's really all of the wines that you are going to allow yourself to sample or to consider for coverage? Because that's a very small 
narrow percentage of the wine world. And it just seems so limiting. So I think my frustration is just around the dogma of it. Like, you know, I understand if you want to only um, go, you know, only uh, review organic wines or biodynamic wines or whatever your thing is, but it's this very rigid thinking around wines where uh, only a small slice of uh, the pie will be considered and nothing else is worthy of consideration at all. Well, I think it's it's in rigidity. Rigidity is a word, right, guys? Oh, yeah. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It's in rigidity where you actually can poke holes. So I think when you when you become that way, right? I've I've never said while there's there's a lot of natural wines I have not enjoyed, I've never said I full stop paint natural wine and won't drink it. There's a there, I've had some that I really do enjoy a lot, right? That I love actually. That I think some people would consider natural. There's a lot of wine bars that consider themselves natural that I love drinking at because they have a lot of wines on their list that maybe they've decided in their own definition are natural, but that I would consider just to be great, well-made wines, right? That don't have a lot of the faults that I don't enjoy in some natural wines. But I think when you have rigidity, you make it very easy for people to to come at, at you. So, I mean, one perfect example, this is a tweet that that was sent by a very well-known wine writer, uh, you know, earlier this week in which this wine writer, who is a big, big, probably one of the biggest proponents of natural wine, said, I do not think that wine should be in anything but a bottle. Well, the second you say that, you make your stance on natural wine look very bullshit. Because wines in can and bag and box, etc., are far more sustainable for the environment, which is one of the reasons that most people say they support natural wines, than bottle. Bottle is one of the yep. biggest ways to create a massive carbon footprint. Right, so, yeah, the biggest part. Right. So the second you tweet that, you are all of a sudden basically make, letting people come after you and say, your whole stance is bullshit. Like this this whole entire you know th- persona you've created over the last few decades seems really hollow because you, you don't support the actual thing that makes wine sustainable, which is alternative packaging. So I, I think that's why – but if, if, you, if you weren't – if you hadn't been that rigid – for so long, no one would have come after you for this. That's great. You love you love the romanticism of wine and bottle. I get it. There's a lot of people that love the romanticism of wine under cork as opposed to screw cap. I get it. There there are reasons for both why it's more sustainable under screw cap and why it's more sustainable in bag and box or you know can. But I I I, I will admit as well that like, dude, it's pretty awesome to open a, a beautiful Barolo that's been in a bottle under a cork. <laughs> like there, it just is. But I would never say it's the only way that I would ever consume wine. Right. Or saying that alternative packaging should go away. I right. mean, who, who can defend that? Right. Or that no wine in alternative packaging can be good. And that's nonsense because I've had good wine in not just in can or in bag and box, but out of a keg. Like you can have great experiences with all of those things and probably lots more that are being dreamed up. And and yeah, again, it's just this unnecessary sort of narrowing of what can be a, a an acceptable wine experience that is should be the the opposite of what most people in the industry are trying to do. You know, the wine is is perpetually at a sort of crisis point depending on how you view it with with you know the fact that people have lots and lots of drinking options these days and some are turning to wine and others are not and if you want wine to be to be vibrant and vital and and sort of uh ever renewing then you have to say hey look you know the thing that the, the i mean all great wine in the world used to travel around the world in in casks and and never saw a bottle like that was the way it was, you know, you got a tankard or something, um, 
you know, and so, so like the world of wine has evolved many times. It was an amphora before that. So like this idea that, that no, the only way to enjoy wine is, is in a glass bottle with, with a, you know, cork in it is, is just an unnecessarily narrow view that, that, yeah, again, not only is overly rigid, but is also just, you know, again, so alienating to a lot of people who would otherwise do and enjoy wine. Well, and I think alienating is the right way to say it. So what we should be, what we realize in this industry is that wine's share of the pie is shrinking and we should not be trying to make that smaller and smaller. We should be trying to make it bigger and bigger. And these rigid sort of like, you know, um, very narrow minded, you know, definitions and takes and like gatekeeper like mentalities saying that the bigger wine industry or other types of wines are not cool is just not useful to the category at all. I think that's the perfect way to leave it. You guys agree? Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much uh, for another great conversation. Um, And for any of you listening who either agree, disagree with us, have a hot take, uh, shoot us your thoughts at podcast at com. I promise we respond to every single email we get um, and we all talk about them and they obviously help fuel ideas for future episodes. So shoot us an email, let us know your thoughts and we really appreciate everyone listening. And you too, I will talk to you next week. Take care. Sounds great. And now another word from our sponsor, Gosling's Rum. Gosling's Black Seal Rum is the spirit of Bermuda. Handcrafted by eight generations of family rum makers, Black Seal Rum is the key ingredient in Bermuda's national drink, the Dark and Stormy. One of the few trademark cocktails in existence, the Dark and Stormy trademark is turning 40 years old this June. Mix up your own. Stock up on Gosling's Black Seal Rum and Gosling's Stormy Ginger Beer in time for Dark and Stormy Day on June 9th. For a limited time, receive $15 off your purchase on ReserveBar.com using code FINEPAIR. And we'll see you all here for Gosling's Day on June 9th. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.